It is so good to see everybody here this morning. You know, I say pretty much the same thing every week, um, and often I'll say that I love to see what God is doing in this group of people and with this group of people, and I hope that you realize that I mean that in, in more ways than one. I mean, obviously, we're a growing church family, and there's more and more people in our auditorium nearly every Sunday morning, and there's new families that are coming to be a part of our community, and that is incredibly exciting. There is a huge, sometimes a downplayed importance to our Sunday assembly, to coming together and to breaking the bread and sharing the cup together and singing these songs together and praying together and being together because as we said last week, it sets the stage for our entire week. But I not only am excited about that, this time together, but, but things like the fact that our Sunday morning Bible class attendance is going up. Mark shared with me this week that Last Sunday at our uh, our Life Group Sunday that we set a 2019 record uh, for the number of people at Life Groups. Because it's one thing for us to come together for an hour and to be in here together, but we also want to make sure that we are growing closer together, loving each other more, that our lives are more and more integrated with each other's lives. And the only person who can do that, I'm convinced, as we talked about in our series last month, the only person I'm convinced that can do that is the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. And, and I believe the Spirit is working here in drawing us closer and closer to one another. But I'll, I'll be honest, I, I know, I know that there's probably some of us that don't feel that way. Some of us that don't feel like, say about themselves and their family, I don't feel like my family is getting drawn closer and closer and closer. I don't feel like my life is getting more integrated with the lives of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me tell you, if you feel that way, share that with someone. Share that with someone. We have 11 shepherds here, and they want nothing more than to make sure that the sheep of this flock are integrated and are part of each other's lives. And so if you feel disconnected, share that with the shepherd. Share that with me. Share that with Mark. Share that with someone. Be intentional about allowing the Spirit to draw us closer and closer and closer to one another because, church, that's what it's about. Us being the church, us loving each other, it's not a sub-point to the gospel. Like sometimes I think we think, well, the gospel is how do I get saved and go to heaven when I die? And then like being a part of the church and the church loving me and me loving the church and our lives being tied together, that's sort of a sub point or another point or it's a a nice addition to it. But no, no, that's at the very heart of the gospel. And so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about this passage in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And I want to read it again. And I want to focus especially on verse 35 this morning. And we're going to kind of skip around in the New Testament, but it's because we're discussing this verse right here and how significant and important and what this means and what this looks like in your life, what this looks like in my life, what this looks like in our daily lives. Listen to what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Now, by love one another, 
here, Jesus isn't specifically talking about loving your neighbor or even your enemy. Although, although we know for Jesus, that was high priority, right? Of the highest priority. He said there's, there's two commandments. It all gets summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And love your neighbor, regardless of who your neighbor is, as yourself. Jesus would say, love your enemies and turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And Jesus would teach all of those things. But here he's specifically talking about us, his disciples, loving one another, each other, other disciples. And he says, by this, all people, that's everybody else, the world, unbelievers, those who aren't disciples of Jesus, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the question that's kind of been rattling around in my head for the last three weeks, the one that I've been really anxious for us to think about and explore together as a church family is this, what kind of behavior would cause outsiders to take notice of relationships inside the church. Just think about that for just a second. What kind of behavior would cause outsiders to take notice of relationships inside the church? Because that's what Jesus says, isn't it? He says that they, all people, the people out there, will notice, will observe, will recognize, will perceive, will see that you guys are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So what does that look like? What kind of love within a community is recognized and observed by those outside of the community and those outside the community say that those inside the community love each other and have a different kind of relationship than other communities, than other people? That they love each other in a unique and distinct kind of way. What sort of behavior would stand out? I thought maybe first we would talk about what it, what it's not, right? Three things that, that won't be noticed by outsiders about relationships inside the church. Number one is sentimentality. I don't think Jesus was talking about sentimentality. I don't think he was talking about just the way you feel about each other. Sometimes we, Talk about love, and that's what we mean. We mean the way we feel about each other. And again, as we said last week, feelings are significant. They're important. I I think we ought to feel something for one another. But but that's not what's going to cause people on the outside of the church to recognize there's something different about those people because they feel about each other a certain way because they don't know how you feel, right? They don't know how you feel other than what you say, but I think even number two, superficiality isn't it either. It's really easy to be superficially friendly with each other, right? I was in New York City a few weeks ago, my family and I, and we were out there, like seven million people packed into this tiny little Manhattan Island. I mean, there's so many people, and I mean, people were friendly to some extent. I mean, you know, if you said hello, they would say hello. If you, you know, I mean... They were friendly to some extent, but there's just sort of a superficial, surface-level friendliness that we have with everybody, right? You could go to the grocery store or to the mall or sometimes on the highway, usually not, and and you would find sort of a surface-level friendliness, right? 
Every now and then, somebody will let you cut in line. You know, every now and then, somebody will let you in in your car. I mean, there's a surface level of friendliness that all kinds of people have for each other. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not just our feelings, and it's not just this surface level friendliness. And number three, it's not this. And I think we have to say this. It's not moral flexibility. I think sometimes we think if we love each other, that we'll be morally flexible. And and sort of have no moral standards with each other. I mean, you can read the rest of the New Testament, and that's not the case. You can read Jesus' words. That's not the case. Jesus called his disciples to a high moral standard. The center of which is self-giving love and faithfulness. Be faithful even to the point of death. Be faithful even if your faithfulness looks like you giving your life for me. So it's not this sort of moral flexibility that you just do whatever you want to do, I'll do whatever I want to do, and we'll just like each other and all get... That's not what Jesus is talking about, is it? So what is it? What, what What does this really look like? What kind of behavior, what kind of love can be observed from those on the outside observing relationships inside the church. Here's three things that I think that the rest of the New Testament agrees that these are the types of things that Jesus is talking about. So these are the things that will cause outsiders to take notice. Number one, charity. Charity. Taking care of each other's needs. In fact, did you realize that the English word charity comes from the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, And do you know what word we translate charis as? Grace. Grace. That's what grace means. Grace is charity. It's a gift. And because God has extended charis, grace, charity to us, we extend grace to one another. And so one of the things that will be observed from those on the outside about those on the inside is that we take care of each other's needs. Number two, unity. A diverse group of people, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different languages, different amounts of wealth and power and prestige, different backgrounds and cultures, all coming together and treating each other not not as friends, but as family, as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. That's what will cause the world to take notice. Number three, loyalty. Each willing to love each other as he has loved us. And what does that look like? First John chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. He laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for each other. Loyalty, devotion. As Paul says in in Romans chapter 12, devoted to one another in brotherly love. I will live with you. I will die for you. We are family. We're devoted to each other. These are the types of things, charity, unity, loyalty. These are the types of things that can be observed by those on the outside about relationships inside the church, and they were, they were, people did take notice of Christians' love, Christians' charity and unity and loyalty. See, in the 
ancient world, when someone extended charity to you, when someone extended grace to you, it sort of obligated you to them, right? And so if a powerful person, if the emperor came to town and said, hey, because I'm such a gracious leader, I'm such a gracious king, I'm such a gracious emperor, I'm going to build you a new arena, or I'm going to build you a new temple, or I'm going to build you this, that, or the other. He didn't do it just because he was a nice guy, right? He did it so that the people would be loyal to him. See, but what happens when Christian people begin to say, I've received grace, charis, from God. I've received charity from God. And so now I'm going to pass that on to other people, not so that they're obligated to me, but so that they're obligated to God. So now their loyalty belongs to God. Well, eventually, over time, you begin to break the loyalty that those people have to pagan rulers, right? And the pagan rulers don't like it so much. They don't like the fact that it's Christians that are rushing in to meet the needs of the people. They don't like it that it's Christians that are racing in to fix things and to build things and to help people out of the goodness of their heart because they've received grace from God, so they're passing that on to other people. And now the people are loyalty to Yahweh and not to those rulers. See, a lot of us probably realize that around 313 A.D., Constantine uh, legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. But not long after that, about 361, his nephew, Emperor Julian, became the emperor, and he tried to sort of reverse things and get the, the empire back on track with worshiping the Roman gods. And so he tried to reverse everything, get everybody, stop worshiping the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, stop worshiping that God, and, and get back to worshiping the gods of our forefathers. And in order to do that, he noticed a problem. And he said the problem was the charity of Christians. The charity of Christians was was the problem. Here's a quote from Emperor Julian. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the what he calls the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. And by atheism, he doesn't, believe, doesn't mean believing in no God. He means not believing in their gods. So he says the reason why our people don't believe in our gods and the reason why more and more people are not believing in our gods is because of their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, the holiness of their lives, people are seeing it, observing it, leaving paganism and becoming followers of their God. In fact, so much so was Julian convinced, if we are going to sort of reignite the fires of of Roman gods and goddesses and worship of Roman gods and goddesses, if we're ever going to get that revived, then our priests, our pagan priests, are going to have to start acting like Christians. And they're going to have to start being charitable. And so he started encouraging the pagan high priests to, hey, start doing stuff like the Christians do. If we want to have people join us and not become followers of Jesus, then, then these are the kinds of things that we have to do. He says this, another quote. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, and by that he means Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack 
aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. If we're going to beat the Christians, then we have to outgive them. Because everybody knows we don't take care of our poor the way they not only take care of their poor, but also our poor. They're loving not only themselves, but also us. And it's making us look bad. This is the type of love that the early church practiced. This is the type of love that is observable by those on the outside. When Christian people take care of themselves. I mean, it's, it's in every book of the New Testament, isn't it? I think about Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 32, the the church has just been established. The Holy Spirit has broken out. People are becoming followers of Jesus. The kingdom is spreading. And it says this, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It, It doesn't really mean that they lived in a commune like we think of a commune. I mean, people still said, okay, This thing, this property, this house, this money, this is mine, but it's not mine alone. It's not mine exclusively. I'm willing to share it. If you need some of it, if I need to sell this so that my brother or sister is taken care of, we say in Spanish, they say, mi casa es su casa, right? My house is your house. And that's how the early church thought of their house. My house is your house. My stuff is your stuff. My car, they didn't have cars, but my car is your car. All all of these things. I'm willing to share whatever because we're family and that's what family does. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And that's what Brian said this morning, isn't it? In our focus before the contribution. This is significant because we're continuing to do the exact same thing. And and Christian people have for 2,000 years. We, We take part of what we have And we we put it in a collection plate so that as anyone has need, as any ministry has need, as any person has need, so that there's not a needy person among us. So that as Emperor Julian observed, none of us have to beg because we take care of each other's needs. This is observable by the outside. It should be observable by the outside. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Uh, James talks a lot about things like wisdom, and love, and he says, listen, if you've got faith, or you've got wisdom, or you've got love, it's, it's not enough to just say you've got faith, or you've got wisdom, or you've got love. I mean, big deal. Anybody can say they've got love. Anybody can say they've got faith. Anybody can say they've got wisdom, but it has to show itself. It has to be observable. He says this in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? What good is that? That's not faith. That's not wisdom. That's not love. John, again, very similarly, we talked about this passage a few weeks ago. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this, we know love. 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, so I've, I've got what he needs. I've got what she needs. I have what my brother or sister desperately needs, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. I saw this on Facebook this week. There's this picture, the next slide. And, and this man, I don't know anything about him, but I saw this, this post, and he has a ministry apparently where they build caskets for people that there are so many elderly people that can't afford a six, the quote says, I don't have any idea, six to $12,000 casket. And so they build these caskets at cost for people that can't afford them. Now, do you suppose that people take notice of that? Do, do you suppose that if a Christian has a skill in woodworking, for instance, and he leverages that skill to take care of his brothers or sisters that are in need, that the people that attend the funeral or the people at the funeral home, that they take notice of these kinds of things? Wow. They take care of each other. And again, it's not that our charity is limited to ourselves. It's that we love all people. As Paul says, do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. That we take care of each other. And I know for a fact that some of our benevolence guys here at McDermott have told me that there are those in this number that just write a check to the benevolence ministry, to the, the ministry that does this and says, here's a check. I don't want to know where you give it. I don't want them to know where it came from. Just help the people that need to be helped. This is what discipleship looks like. This is what is recognizable by those on the outside looking in. We take care of each other. And, and it's, not, it's not just an eldership thing. It's not just a deacon thing. It's not just a preacher thing. It's a every member ministry kind of thing where we all take care of each other. And we all take whatever it is that we have. If we have money, we leverage money. If we have authority, we leverage authority. If we have skill, we leverage skill. We have whatever we have and we bring it to the table for the good of our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors and everyone with whom we come into contact. And the world takes note of it. Note of it. And so number one, charity. Number two, unity. Unity. A diverse group of people treating each other as family. That is observable by the outside world. I've been, there's a, a thought that's been rattling around in my head this week. The more pronounced our differences, the more profound our unity. Think about that for a second. The more pronounced our differences, the more profound our unity. When you can see that two people are radically different just different people from different places, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different nationalities, different languages, whatever it may be, the more pronounced our differences, the more profound our unity. The world takes notice of it, and it always has. Don't you suppose that in the first century world, 
a, a young, wealthy Roman treating a poor, older Jewish man as his elder, as his mentor, almost like a father? Don't you suppose his Roman friends looked at him and said, that's weird. Why is it that you treat this old Jewish man as your elder? You respect him and listen to him like you would your own father. (laughs) Because we're family. You're family. How are you family? We're family in Jesus. Imagine imagine if there was a a pious Jewish woman who lived a, a pious, godly life and she spends her time hanging out with a woman that everybody in town knows she was a prostitute. And now they're like sisters. They're family. Do you, do you not suppose the world would take notice of that? Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor. Do you not suppose the world would take notice of that? Gentile neighbors, Jewish neighbors, everybody saying, what is it with these Jesus followers? They are so diverse, yet they're so unified. They come from different backgrounds. Don't they know who they used to be? Don't they know what they used to do? Don't they know where they came from? Yes, and it doesn't matter because they're family in Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the kind of thing that the world observes. You think about the churches in Galatia. There were several churches in that region. And Paul had just gotten back from a mission journey there. He had spent so much time preaching the gospel there, bringing people together there, Jew, Gentile, everybody coming together in Jesus. And then some people went up there and they were trying to break up those families. And there were some people that would have been perfectly happy if if the way of the Messiah stayed purely Jewish, ethnically. And they, they would be perfectly happy if all the Gentiles just went somewhere else and believed something else and did something else. And if they were going to stick around, then they needed to at least pretend to be Jewish. They needed to look Jewish and follow the Jewish rules and customs. And Paul, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, steps in and says, not on my watch. That's not the gospel. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one. You are all one. Slave and free. Jew and Gentile. Male and female. You are all one. That doesn't mean you stop being male or female. It doesn't mean you stop being Jewish. It doesn't mean you stop being Greek. It doesn't mean you stop being Roman. It doesn't mean you even that you stop being a slave. You may still be in a horrible situation. You may still be in a great situation. You may still have money. You may still have, not have money. But one thing you have now is family and unity within that family. And you know what eventually started to happen is that people that had slaves and realized it's not right for me to own my brother or my sister. In fact, it's not right that my neighbor owns my brother or my sister. They began to leverage their influence and their power and their wealth 
to set people free. Why? Because that's what Jesus had done for them. That's what it does when a diverse group of people become family. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So our charity is observable by the outside world. Our unity is observable by the outside world. And third, our loyalty is observable by the outside world. A willingness to suffer with and even die for one another. I think about Paul's ministry and the list of people that were willing to be imprisoned with Paul or be seen with Paul. I mean, if, if there was a guy and he was arrested for being an insurrectionist, this, this Paul guy, he's dangerous. He's stirring up like anti-Roman sentiments, anti-Jewish sentiments. Everybody was mad at him at one time or another and they arrested him. And Would you want to be hanging out with him? And be seen with him? They may throw you in jail as well, but there were people that were willing to do exactly that. Why? Because they were loyal to each other. And don't you suppose people took notice of that? Those that would come and visit Paul while he was in prison? Those that would take care of his needs? Those that would risk their own freedom and their own security and their own safety because their loyalty to their brother was more important? Look at Romans chapter 16. Verses 3 and 4, he talks about a couple that Paul loved dearly and that meant the world to him. He said, greet Prisca, that's Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This, this is what Christianity looks like is that we love each other so much that we're loyal to each other, devoted to each other. And I don't know about you, but I need a reminder of that sometimes, don't you? I mean, sometimes when my phone rings and I think, I just don't, you know, I just, I'm tired or I've got this or I've got that. I need a reminder. Jesus' loyalty to you has saved you. But it's not only saved you, it's transformed you so that you express and exercise that same loyalty to your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We must be loyal to each other, not only for their sake, but for the sake of the world, because the world sees our charity and our unity and our loyalty. I think about a story I read this week of church historian named Eusebius in the 4th century. He lived in Caesarea, and in Caesarea there had been famine, there had been the plague, there had been war, and the entire citizenship was devastated. He says this, that the evidences of the universal zeal and piety of the Christians became manifest to all the heathen. All the heathen, all the unbelievers knew about these Christian people. It says, for they, the Christians, showed their sympathy and humanity by their deeds. And look at this next slide. Here's this again from Eusebius. Every day, some of the Christians continued caring for and burying the dead. Now again, if you lived in a city where there had been famine and the plague and war, you probably would have done what a lot of people did. Leave, right? Go somewhere else where all of this isn't going on. But a bunch of Christians stayed. To do what? 
Continue caring for and burying the dead, for there were multitudes who had no one to care for them. Others collected in one place those who were afflicted by the famine throughout the entire city and gave bread to them all, so that the thing became noised abroad among all men. And, listen to this part, and they glorified the God of the Christians. It's noticeable, isn't it? When God's people, when Jesus' followers are full of charity and unity and loyalty, it's noticeable, it's observable, not just by those on the inside who are experiencing it, who are living it, but those who are on the outside witnessing it. So here's my moment of truth question for us today. If you were the only Christian that your neighbors knew well, what would they say about Christians' love for one another? If you were the only Christian that your neighbors knew well, what would your neighbors think in general about Christians' love for one another? Do they see the church loving you? Do they see the church serving you? Do they see you loving and serving the church? Do they see the church's charity extended towards you, meeting your needs? And do they see you extending charity towards others? Do they see your loyalty and devotion to your church family and your church family's loyalty and devotion to you? And you think, ah, my neighbors, they don't they don't notice. They don't know. Well, you know a whole lot about your neighbors, don't you? I mean, you see what's happening, right? You see people coming and going, and you talk to your neighbors, and you know when somebody's sick over there or somebody's passed away over there, and you see how many cars come and how many cars go. And if you talk to them and visit with them, you know who's ministering to them and who's not ministering to them. And they likely know the same about you. You see if we want to have the same type of impact in the world today as the first century had on the world it was planted in, then we have to practice the same types of things Jesus told them to practice. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the love you have for one another is the way in which the world will know that you are my disciples. They will know you by your love. This is not only what we're signing up for, to receive the charity, the grace, the charis that we receive when we're baptized into Jesus, but this is the life that we are signing up to be a part of, to go out into the world and to help be a part of God changing the world, not through sentimentality, not through superficiality, not through moral flexibility, but through love. We are signing up to be a part of that. We are a part of that. And regardless of what we did yesterday or what we failed to do yesterday, let's make a concerted effort today. They will know us by our love. And if we can help love you or help you with whatever it is you're going through right now, 
or if you don't know that you're connected and integrated into the church family and you want to be, please visit with our shepherds after service. Pray with them. Let them pray with you. Tell them what's going on in your life. Or right now, you have a tremendous opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing.